A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and uh, this episode we're back uh, following a relatively long hiatus of a few weeks without any episodes of Jewish History Soundbites. It was summertime, and also I was investing a bit into the Jewish future for a change, which necessitated uh, taking a short break from delving into the Jewish past. I do appreciate the love expressed by the many listeners who inquired as to where I was and why there hasn't been any episodes lately, so thank you all. And actually, it led me to think that maybe this is Kadai to do once in a while, you know, just to take a break, just to be able to feel missed. It's a real boost to my self-esteem. But in any event, now we're back, better than ever, with great content and some great topics coming up in the next few weeks and months. So stay tuned as the episodes should be coming out more consistently uh, for now. I also figured that everyone was busy last week with another historic event, which is the death of... Mikhail, Mikhail, how do you, however you pronounce his first name, Gorbachev, the uh, last premier of the Soviet Union, and um, his legacy both within the, in Russia, the former Soviet Union, and those areas as well as the world. And as far as the Jews are concerned, it is pretty historic as uh, he definitely gets the credit for opening the gates of the Soviet Union for those Jews who wanted to emigrate and seek a new life in other countries. So that's definitely a historic legacy that he has as far as the Jewish people are concerned uh, for Gorbachev. And also it seems that uh, he's one of the last Cold War world leaders to have been uh, to, to, to have died. I think as, as maybe there's others. Maybe the Chinese ones I'm not so familiar with, maybe there's others. Um, but it seems that the only Cold War era world leader left is Henry Kissinger. Um, but um, we'll leave Cold War tidbits for another time. So today we're going to talk about um, the Jewish world of the 18th century, specifically uh, in Central Europe, in Prague, one of the largest and greatest Jewish communities at the time as seen through the life story of one of the most important Jewish leaders of that century, the Neide Behuder of Yecheskel Landau, who was the longtime rabbi of Prague and had a very, very fascinating life, and his uh, leadership on the Jewish stage 
um, in Central Europe at the time. Most of um, most of us are familiar with um Cheska Landau from Shmuel Kunda's The Longest Pesach album. Um, that's where his claim to fame is, and that's that was definitely the first source I had growing up about Rivi Cheska Landau, the Night of Yehuda. Um, is is that a true story, by the way? Who knows? Um, I don't know for sure. Definitely uh, Solomon Wind, um, who's one of the biographers of the uh, of the Night of Yehuda, cites it as a true story. I don't know if any other biographers, and he has many biographers, many, much research has been done on him, one of the most written about uh, personalities of modern Jewish history. Um, so I don't know if it is actually a true story or not. I assume that Solomon Wynn's account is where Shmuel Kunda himself got it from. In any event, I don't know, even if it is a true story, I don't know if Simon the Baker's uh, bakery, uh, with all its tricks and fakery, is still around in Prague. I definitely haven't seen it in any of my tours that I've brought uh, the groups for. Like I said, there are many, many sources um, on um, on the Night of Yehuda, loads of books. One of my favorite is uh, Maoz Kahana, his uh, latest uh, book. Uh, not, I don't know if it's actually, I don't, I don't even know if it's his latest anymore. Um, one of the greatest researchers today, um, but he has this incredible uh, book, Mehanoide uh, Yehuda Adachatam Sofer, where he examines both the Night of Yehuda and the Chasam Sefer and the Jewish world in between the two. Um, and it's an excellent, excellent book. Either learn Hebrew in order to read it, or get someone to translate it, because it's a must-read. But in the introduction to the book, he brings a long, long list of all the works written about the Night of Yehuda. So if it's a topic that interests you, you can check out his list there and get all the books on the topic and uh, and, and read them all. There's loads of articles, uh, you know, there's many, many accounts, many... Uh, any much material out there. Of course, on my trips to Prague, we go to his grave in the new Jewish cemetery of Prague in the outskirts, which has been mostly destroyed. There's a big TV tower erected on top of the uh, most of the cemetery, but um, a small section of the cemetery still exists where the Naidi Behuda's uh, grave has been preserved, so we pay our respects there and daven there. Um, and there are several different aspects that we can examine um, when we talk about the Naid Yehuda, his life, his leadership, and the Jewish world of his time. There's, of course, his uh, Torah scholarship, which is incredibly impressive, and his literary output, which he began to publish himself in his own lifetime, and much of it was published by his children uh, in his, uh, following his passing in the decades after his passing. There's his rabbinical leadership, um, there's his national leadership as a on the national Jewish scene, not just his rabbinical leadership primarily in Prague, but also before that in Brod and Yampola um, in Eastern Europe, but um, in also on the national scene where he was a moderator in different disputes, where he took an active part in other disputes, where he took initiative, um, where he had where he represented the Jewish people um, to the Habsburg. Uh, a government of Austria, uh, and internally and externally, he was a, the face of traditional Jewish life in many respects. Um, I mentioned his Torah scholarship. I'm reminded of a yeshi- very yeshivish story that I was told 
when I was in the Mir Yeshiva, that um, Rabbi Yaakov Yafin, the son of Rabbi Avram Yafin, uh, the Rosh Yeshiva of Navardic, so Rabbi Yaakov Yafin, who lived in Borough Park after the war, so he um, was a great genius, and he would describe the genius of his cousin, Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, the Mir Rosh Yeshiva. So you have one genius describing the genius of another um, Torah scholarly individual. And how would Rabbi Yaakov Yafin describe the genius of his cousin, Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz? He would say that he knows the, the, the commentary of the Tzlach, which is the Naidi Behuda, Rabbi Cheskalanda, authored a commentary on Shas called the Tzlach, Tzioin Lenefesh Chaya, named for his mother, whose name was Chaya, you know, naturally. Um, so, so there's a hundred pages that the Tzlach has written on one of the most complicated passages in Shas, that of Rabbi Chaninus Gan Akayanim, the eight 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 uh, daf of Gemara in in Psachim, starting on Daf Yedalid, going through Daf Chafal of Chafbeis. I don't remember exactly. And there's a hundred pages of commentary of the Tzlach on those on this very very complicated Tyrus sugya of Shas. And Reb Chaim Shmulevitz knew those hundred pages by heart of the Tzlach. So, so that was how he would describe what a genius Reb Chaim Shmulevitz was. So I always thought to myself, what about the Tzlach himself, the one who authored that, the one who wrote those hundred pages? What does that say about his scholarship? And obviously it means that it's beyond any of our conceptions. What an incredible Talmud Chacham and Torah scholar he was, the the. He's born in Poland, in the old Polish kingdom, and uh, he eventually comes to Central Europe much later, to Austria, to, to Prague much later, and his emergence as a leader starts already when he's still in Poland. He comes from a very aristocratic, um, important uh, Jewish family in Apta, in, in Galicia, in, in, in Poland at the time. And the Jewish world that he's born into, he's born in 1713. He spans pretty much the entire 18th century from 1713 to 1793 is when he passes away in Prague. And uh, Shmuel Feiner, another great researcher of our time, has among the many, many good books he's written, but he's recently authored a two-volume work, which is what he calls a biography of the 18th century, the Jewish 18th century, uh, where he you know, basically profiles the 18th century of the Jewish world as if it was a personality, as if it was a biography, which is a really, really creative way of, of doing it. And, and uh, it's an excellent book. And the Jewish 18th century is fascinating as it's the on the cusp of change, as both in general society and as a result, of course, in Jewish society. There's all these political changes, and if we go into the world of the Night of Yehuda, then we're talking about in Austria, where he spent the latter half of his life, of Maria Theresa, Empress Maria Theresa, the Habsburg Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, um, and uh, of Austria, which is of Austria, and, uh, and, and the political changes that, that result as a result of her leadership, and as well as of her son, Joseph II, who succeeds her in 1780. There's the military aspect as well. There's the Seven Years' War, which goes from 1756 to 1763. It actually starts two years earlier on the other side of the world. What 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 does it, what instigates what what uh, precipitates the 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 uh, the um, the Seven Years' War is is in the colonies in the in the um, 
in the in the British colonies of the New World, and in the in in the in the United States, it's known as the French and Indian War. It starts in 1754, and actually, the first military hero of that war, at the Battle of Fort Necessity, is uh, is uh, George Washington, a young officer hired by the British to fight the French um, in on the frontier, and you know to define the borders of where the British and French colonies are in the New World. So it's the French and Indian War in the New World, but it spills over into Europe as the Seven Years' War, and um, and it changes the European balance of power um, when all the other European powers get involved. Empress Maria Theresa, who's one of the main players eventually in the Seven Years' War, she has this very complicated relationship with the Jews. She's quite an anti-Semite, actually, um, and uh, she doesn't, which is really common for a Holy Roman Emperors at the time. It's not, it's not that she's so unique in that respect. Um, and they had the Jews in in Austria and the Austrian lands, um, which includes Prague, of course, have um, ups and downs during the time of her reign. Um, and what's interesting is that the Nadi Behuda has to navigate it around as the rabbinical leader of Prague for all those years has to navigate around this relationship, and he uh, tries to do anything he can to express the Jewish patriotism and support in the Seven Years' War, and praying for Maria Theresa's health in a public prayer, and, and, and trying to maintain a good relationship with her and her government um, to, for the betterment of the Jewish people. So there's this interesting, uh, you know, there, there's this, you know, towards the end of her reign, she does... Uh, um, she, I don't know if she has a good relationship with the Jewish, her Jewish subjects, but definitely not as bad as it was in the earlier years of her reign. Possibly as a result of the leadership of uh, the Nadi Behuda, we'll see as we we go along. But the Nadi Behuda is in Prague during the reign of Maria Theresa, during the Seven Years' War, and this is what he's dealing with as a result. Also, the challenges of of war, you know, irregardless of of who's in charge, the war brings challenges, people are fleeing the city, the Nadibi who does not, he stays with his community, um, the food shortages, uh, disease spreading, all the problems that warfare brings. I um, just want to just elaborate for a minute on what the Seven Years' War brought and, and how that affects the Jewish people. Is First of all, the Seven Years' War is possibly the first world war. Um, 150 years, maybe even more, uh, 170 years or so before what we call World War One, this is already a global conflict that's fought on multiple continents with multiple world players. There's a realignment of traditional allies. This this particular war, England and Prussia, go against France and Austria. Um, Spain eventually sides with Austria. Portugal sides with England. In our context, in the context of our story, the most important player is, of course. Austria and Maria Theresa is very wary of Prussian expansion in Europe. Um, England emerges from the war much stronger as a true global power, as a naval power. Austria was less the center than it had traditionally been as a result of the Seven Years' War. Prussia emerges as a dominant force in Europe for the first time, which alters the European balance of power. 
the Holy Roman Empire and Austria as its center, Vienna as its center, is now not the dominant force in Central Europe. Prussia and Berlin uh, emerges stronger. And you have to bear in mind that this precedes the partitions of Poland by just a few years. So a few years down the road, both Austria and Prussia are going to bite out chunks of the Polish kingdom. So it's in the shadow of the recent uh, Seven Years' War. In 1780, a few years later, following the death of, of the Empress, of Maria Theresa, her son Joseph II becomes the Habsburg Emperor, and two years later, in 1782, he passes the Edict of Tolerance, which tolerates religions other than Catholicism, and the Jews benefit from this Edict of Tolerance. And this ushers in an era of... of um, Enlightenment of uh, uh, enlightened absolutism. That's that's the monarchy of Joseph II. Um, soon after, the first draft of Jews into the Austrian military is passed. So there's this slow integration of Jews into Austrian society. So this is the beginning of emancipation, the beginning of citizenship, and this is before the French Revolution. So it's important to note that. Um, and as Chief Rabbi of Prague, Rabbi Cheskel Landau is directly involved in reacting to the government impl implementation of these reforms. He's involved in the new government Jewish school, which was established in Prague, and it's a you know, compulsory education, new government schools for the Jewish subjects. It obviously included a general education, so he's involved in that school, um, and he do doesn't have any tremendous opposition to that school, um, which I don't know if he could have had because it was the government ordained. Um, he delivered a famous address to the first batch of Jewish recruits into the Austrian military. Um, so he's involved in, in the draft as well, and other aspects as well, which we'll perhaps explore as we go along. But he, he, he's, it, it, there's this reaction to the forces of modernity, and like I always speak about on this podcast, this is primarily coming from the outside. This is the governments that are changing, the military aspect, the political aspect, external forces... Uh, the Enlightenment, that's all external. And the Jewish uh, internal reactions of Haskalah, which is also present at the time in Prague, is, um, is on a much more minor scale than the external forces of government and those changes that result uh, from that. So Prague is, is in the 18th century, is, is a, one of the largest Jewish communities in Europe, one of the most prestigious Jewish communities in Europe. It's still in its glory days of Prague, still very traditional, um, and, um, and uh, one, of the, uh, one of the aspects of the community that still exists in Prague, which the Night of Yehuda is very much dealing with, is Sabbatianism, uh, followers of Shabsite Svi, a half a century after the conversion and later death of, of this false messiah. Um, there are still many followers, a whole clan, there's a whole group in Prague itself, and this is there, you know, this is a challenge that is confronted by the Night of Yehuda Frankists. Um, there's a Sabbatian prophetess, Razel, uh, Razel Eager, Eager, or something like that, that she's like this uh, leader of the group in in Prague. Um, that's something that the that the Night of Yehuda is dealing with. He's also dealing with the early. Hasidic movement, Hasidic movement of the Baal Shem Tov, but even other than the Baal Shem Tov, there's, you know, different, different, you know, sects, Kabbalistic sects that are in, in Europe at the time, um, you know, followers of the, 
of, of all sorts of Kabbalah, of, of the Arizal and the Shlach Kaddish and later of Nassim Adler and everything. But for sure, with the spread of the Baal Shem Tov's Hasidic movement, in the, the two lived at the same time. The Baal Shem Tov was slightly older than the Naidi Behuda, and, um, and the Naidi Behuda witnessed the rise of the Hasidic movement, and he had what to say about that as well, which we'll get to. He also, in his later years, especially in Prague, he deals with the rise of the early Jewish Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, and progressive movements, uh, the rise of modern scientific research and its influence on the world of Rabbi Cheska Landau and the way and Talmudic Psak Halacha and and all that. This is this is a a a whole milieu of of what of what Rabbi Cheska Landau is dealing with during his years in the in the uh, Prague Rabbinate. There's also internal Jewish controversies that he's involved with. There's what I devoted an episode to a few months ago, the Get of Cleves, the Cleva Get, which Nebuchadnezzar became one of the main opponents of the Frankfurt Rabbinate, so much so that they banned him or any of his descendants from ever becoming the rabbi in Frankfurt. And there's that huge controversy, which I discussed there. There's the Rabbi Yaakov Emden, Rabbi Yenis and Ibishit's dispute, which the Nebuchadnezzar attempted to serve as a moderator, in that dispute, this is an era of Torah giants. I mean, we talked about, just mentioned a few, Yaakov Emden, Yenis, and Ibeshitz. There's all the members of the Brother Klois that the Naidi Behuda was a prestigious member of himself. This is the time of the Baal Shem Tov that I mentioned. Um, of course, the Vilna Gain is alive during most of the Naidi Behuda's life as well. The Shagas Aryeh is a rabbi at the time. The Pnei Yeshua is a rabbi at the time. And many, many others. This is a... A, a, a world of giants in Europe, and yet he, Rabbi Cheskalando, as a rabbi, as a halachic paisik, as a teacher, as a Rosh Hashiva, and most importantly as a leader and statesman, uh, he towered above others. He, he, he was world-renowned in the Jewish world. He also towered physically, too. He was very tall, very imposing. He had a strong personality. He had charisma. He was an aristocrat. He was a very, very a dominant leader on the Jewish scene. It's interesting that most of the famous rabbis at the time were Polish rabbis who migrated west um, to Germany, to Austria, um, there's, which is a general topic for another time, how for centuries Germany imported most of its rabbis from Eastern Europe, from Poland. Um, and this is way before the uh, Haskalah and reform and assimilation wiped out orthodoxy in Germany and Austria. This is going on since since the 1600s. Um, so it's funny, it's funny because recently someone was trying to convince me that German Jewish rabbinical leadership did not decline in the modern era and continued to flourish. And one of his proofs was producing a list for me of a slew of rabbis who served in Germany during that time. So my reaction to that list was, I laughed at him. Hope he didn't get insulted. Most of the people on his list were Polish rabbis who were imported to Germany. So that definitely is testimony to flourishing of rabbinical Jewish life in Germany during those centuries. But that's, like I said, a topic for another time. It's actually a fascinating topic for another time. I hope to cover it one day. Uh, the Knight of Yudah himself was like that. He's born in Apta uh, in 1713, in, uh, which is a town, of course, in, in Galicia. Um, and he becomes a member of the famous Brode Cloys, one of the most interesting um, uh, places of Jewish scholarship, uh, fermenting uh, Torah scholarship in a very unique way. 
in, in classic scholarship, in, in new ways of halacha, and psak, and in Kabbalah, and all kinds of interesting things, in the Kleis in Brody. Brody is, was a very prominent uh, city at the time, center of commerce at the time, in southern Poland, and, um, and it was a very, very prominent Jewish community, one of the most prominent Jewish communities in the entire world at the time. Um, and during his time at the Brother Klois, so other members, uh, along with Rebbe Cheskalando, the young Rebbe Cheskalando, were the base of Ephraim, Ephraim Zalman Margolis, uh, Rebbe Chaim Sanzer, which is not the Devre Chaim of Tzanz, who came well over a century later. This is Rebbe Chaim Sanzer, one of the Achreinim, one of the great Paiskim of his day, one of the great Torah leaders of his day, who was a mentor and teacher of, of Rebbe Cheskalando. Um, he, uh, Rabbi Shulam Igra, Rabbi Gershon Kitaver, who was the brother-in-law of the Baal Shem Tov. This is, of course, before the Baal Shem Tov appears on the Jewish scene. Rabbi Ruvin Margolis, who was another later student of the Baal Shem Tov. It was Rabbi Zev Olusker, who, though not as famous, he had a decisive impact on Rabbi Cheskel Landau's method of study, his Talmudic analysis and psak. And although Rabbi Cheskel Landau would later have a reputation as an opponent a misnagid of the nascent uh, Hasidic movement. Um, he 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 has a very very famous uh, halachic responsa, where he is against l'shem yichud, against reciting l'shem yichud before doing any mitzvah. Before the Hasidic kabbalistic custom was to recite l'shem yichud, a very formula uh, in preparation for observing many many mitzvahs. And uh, he writes an entire halachic response against it, very critical of it. And he paraphrases a pasuk in the Navi that Yesharim uh, Darke Hashem, straight are the ways of God. Tzadikim Yelchubam, the righteous, go along that path, walk, trod that path. Yikashlubam, and the wicked, they stumble along that path. And he. And Naidi Yehuda inserts the word Chasidim instead of Rishayim. He writes V'Chasidim Yikashlubam, and there is a very, very that's a very strong critique of the Hasidic movement. Um, so he's known as an opponent of Chasidus, but unlike his contemporary, the Vilna Gaon, the Naidi Yehuda had first-hand encounters with Hasidim and Hasidic leaders. Um, and he even had a decent relationship with some of them towards the end of his life, despite the ideological differences. So it was a bit of a different approach. It was a from personal encounter, um, and perhaps his interaction with future followers of the Baal Shem Tev in the Brother Klois facilitated this. Who knows? Um, another point is that it, it has been posited, though not proven, that he wasn't even referring to the Baal Shem Tev's uh, Hasidus in the aforementioned tshuva that he wrote, but the old-fashioned Shlaha Kadesh sort of Kabbalistic uh, Hasidic way of life. It's unclear. It's um, there, that theory has been posited lately. Um, so the Naidi Behuda, of course, throughout his career was very wary of Kabbalistic influences on halacha. In fact, it was one of the central themes of his life and reflected his suspicion of the remnants of Sabbatianism and its impact on the Jewish community. And it was within this context that he wrote the tshuva and expressed his opposition. He was against all expressions of Kabbalah and the encroachment of Kabbalistic influence on halachic psak 
And, um, and it was because of what he was dealing with, the remnants of the Shab Saitzvi movement in Prague. And therefore, it is, um, it is in that context that it's to be seen, his opposition to Hasidus and the Hasidic movement, and the, that specific tshuva that he wrote about L'Shem Yichur. And this is related somewhat to another hot topic, the, what the old Hasidus prior to the Baal Shem Tov was, and what the new Hasidus of the Baal Shem Tov was and what the new nuances that the Baal Shem Tov emphasized and how both related to Kabbalah, specifically the Arizal's Kabbalah and as well as what people were suspicious of them as being related to Sabbatianism. And that is definitely also a great topic to be explored at some future time. Um, the Nadi Behudas starts, commences his rabbinical career in, in, in Brod itself as a member of the Klois. He um, get married and he he started to have a family, and he is appointed to the Bezdin, the rabbinical court in Brod. And later he's appointed to the rabbinate of Yampala uh, for about 10 years. And following that, in 1755, and he's 42 years old, he's appointed to the rabbinate in Prague, where he remains till the end of his life for nearly 40 years. Um, and um, he... He, he's, he's already famous, and that's probably why he's appointed to the Prague Rabbin, and is because he had attempted to become a moderator in the dispute of between Rabbeinus and Ibishitz and um, and uh, and Rabbiak of Emden. Um, he um, and that brings him to the national four. That means he's at the forefront of of rabbinical leadership and dispute is by trying to moderate in this terrible controversy that's going on, where he tries to convince Rabbeinus and Ibishitz to withdraw his amulets, his Kabbalistic amulets, and he, he tries to convince Rabbeinus and Ibishitz to back off if he withdraws them, and, and they try to you know, get this uh, compromise uh, um, um, worked out. And, it then, and, 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 uh, and then he assumes the rabbinate in Prague, and he deals with the Shabsite Tzvi followers, he's dealing with the Hasidim in Eastern Europe, he's dealing with the early Haskalah in Prague, the progressive movement, the early stages at the end of his life. Um, he deals with the Kleva Get controversy in Frankfurt, like I said. He's dealing with the government, the military crisis, and, uh, and, and he is a, 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 his main role comes as a Paisik in Halacha, um, Moes Kahana, who I mentioned before, that's his main theme of his entire book, is how the Naidi Behuda is almost revolutionary in his halachic analysis about how he attempts to purify or clean up halacha from non-Talmudic influences. What are non-Talmudic influences, according to the Naidi Behuda's view? Kabbalah, uh, Minag, custom, any post-Talmudic law. In other words, he wants to return to the Shas, return to Chazal, return to the Gemara, to Talmudic law itself. A very interesting and almost modern approach, an almost scientific way of, of doing it, of cleaning out everything else, all these other, taking out Minik, taking out Kabbalah, taking out all these other stuff, and going back to what the Gemara itself, what Chazal meant, and that seems to be his approach Throughout, and he gets involved in all kinds of halacha controversies and modern halacha controversies about allowing, uh, in to a certain extent, allowing shaving on cholamayid, and um, and 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 his tshuva against hunting um, as a sport, um, and he deals with all these modern issues and grapples with them, and and 
and his uh, his opposition to uh, leaving over uh, to to pushing off a Leviah, to, to which is another modern issue, to pushing off a Leviah, leaving over a mace um, overnight or for, for for a lengthy amount of time. Um, so he ha- he's dealing with all the hot button issues of his day. He succeeded Reb David Oppenheim, who was one of the most famous rabbis in Prague history. He had a great famous library of manuscripts and, and books, and so he was a, quite a prominent leader itself, and Prague was still the center of the Jewish world. And one of the interesting things that the Neid Behuda had was, a, was one of his main activities in, in the Prague rabbinate was he had a large and successful yeshiva with hundreds of students, and he delivered at least four shiurim daily, two in Gemara and two in Halacha, and that was all in the morning. His communal work and his bezdin was all in the afternoon, and the evening he would write halachic responses to to his queries at, around the world. Um, he uh, he, um, he he responded in those halachic responses. He would respond quicker to young rabbis in small towns who sent him questions. Uh, over over senior scholars uh, who sent him questions. Why would he respond when he was asked? Why would he respond quicker to younger rabbis as opposed to senior scholars? So he would say, because the younger rabbis are relying on me for the Psach Halacha. The senior scholars, they just want a confirmation. But they know the Halacha on their own. So he had the sense of responsibility to the entire Jewish world. Um, he always had a yeshiva. He had a yeshiva earlier in Yampol as well. So he saw himself as a teacher of Torah, not just as a rabbinical leader. And he he had many, many svarim that he authored, some of which were only published uh, after his passing. The Tzlach, like I said, which was his commentary on Shas, was Tzion Lenefesh Chaya, named for his mother, Chaya. And his his halachic sefer, Naida Yehuda, was named for his father, Yehuda. So he doesn't name his svarim after himself, which was his, his name was Yecheskel. He names them to honor his parents, which is also relatively unique. The Stipler, other people did that as well, but not many. Um, he wrote later, Dagul Mervava, which was his commentary in Shulchan Aruch, many other svarim as well, of Jerusalem, of, of his sermons and other stuff. He left over, uh, his, part of his legacy was his family and students, or Blazer Fleckles, the Tshuva Me'ava, was one of the most famous and prominent students, um, but his sons also, his son Reb Yaakov and his son Reb Shmuel Segalanda, who succeeded him in Prague, Reb Tzal Regensburg, the Chacham Spitzal was another student of his, Reb Ram Danzig, the Chai Adam was also a student of his, many, many others. So he had quite a legacy in that respect as well. So this was about the Naidib Yehuda, Reb Landau. This is Yehuda Gabriel Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at Yehudagabra.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. I hope you enjoyed.